Welcome to the After Talk. Today, we'll be welcoming another guest and a fellow podcaster, Connor Blunt, host of The Blunt Report, an intriguing podcast about science, satire, and expertise. Today, he'll be sharing his thoughts on everything from our Pluto episode to the pursuit of science itself. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. So uh, we understand you made a couple of notes after uh, listening to the formal program and uh, had some interesting thoughts, right? Definitely, definitely. There was a couple of things that I guess um, stood out the most in my mind, uh, you know, things that I'd thought about in the past or even things that I had not thought about and your, I guess, episode really um, brought it to my attention. The, The one thing that really did that I did not realize occurred and you did bring to my attention was when you were talking about Pluto and the, the essentially the, the conference that decided that it was no longer going to be a planet, how there was controversy in the, in terms of the fact that everybody had left the conference when they did the vote, essentially. I did not know that I, that occurred. I thought people were making a big deal out of it, but that alone does make it a bit of an issue. Yeah, it was it was just very contentious and very controversial, as we mentioned mm-hmm. in the episode. And I think a lot of people and the way it was reported in the media was the scientific community got together and they decided Pluto is no longer a planet. And then mm. people who are nostalgic about uh, the planet Pluto, who grew up with it in their textbooks, uh, felt very you know upset by that. Uh, but yeah. it, but in reality, it was a big debate and still is kind of a, something of a debate in uh the community of, of astronomy. And there are a lot of planetary scientists. I think Alan Stern is one we mentioned who uh, have essentially said, well, we're just going to keep calling it a planet, like, because it's, it's simpler. And the definition that we've been working with of a planet makes a lot more sense than this new uh, pedantic definition that the IAU came up with about a decade ago. Do you think it is pedantic? Do you think it's pedantic personally? Uh, yeah. I, I, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I'm going to side with uh, Alan Stern and some of these other uh, planetary scientists and just say that uh, I think, yeah, Pluto should be a planet. And one, and one mm-hmm. of the other uh, things we talk about in the episode is uh, the I think it was Alan Stern. He, he gives the Star Trek reference. He says, imagine you're watching an episode of Star Trek and they pull something up on the viewing screen and it's round. This, you're looking at a sphere and it's clearly a planet, but Spock has to say, "Is like, all right, let me calculate the orbital trajectory and see if it overlaps <laughs> with other planets. You know, it's obvious, you know, we know what a planet looks like in our minds yeah. versus what a star looks like or what an asteroid mm-hmm. looks like. Asteroids uh, typically aren't perfect spheres. They're uh, kind of potato-shaped. Yes, that's right. Yeah, or not even potato shapes. Some of them are really strange shapes too, right? Um, I think I think the thing is, though, with um, Pluto, like... Even before that was sort of occurring, I was kind of in the camp that I didn't really think it was a planet uh, before that either when they did start talking about it purely because of the strange nature of it. And it did sort of get me thinking that um, the path of science quite often is almost that ridiculous pedantic uh, shrinking and shrinking and shrinking definitions to make more and more definitions to make things 
somehow at the same time clearer and less clear, right? Because now suddenly you have two de definitions. You have dwarf planets and planets, which does specify more what a planet is, but that does make it in some respect more difficult and, like you said, more pedantic. Well, and they, they want to have news that's coming out about things and when there isn't a that's whole true. lot coming out about you know that's true the planets yeah. that are out there we're talking about discoveries of potential yeah. planets but they're so uh -huh. far away that we can't really uh -huh. identify I, things i think uh the greatest you know putting aside the debate uh, of whether you know pluto's a planet or not i think the greatest tragedy of it is there are all these other strange worlds discovered on the outer boundaries mm. of the solar system and those uh, incredible discoveries were sort of buried in this whole discussion about is it a planet or is it not a planet? Around the same time, right? Yeah, around the same time. And mm -hmm. uh, But going back to the, the discussion of whether it's a planet or not, it was interesting to read, uh, I would recommend the book How I Killed Pluto and, and Why It Had It Coming by mm -hmm. uh, the astronomer, his name escapes me right now, but the astronomer who discovered all these other bodies on the uh, outer boundaries of the solar system, Mike Brown, that's his name. Okay. So uh, Mike Brown writes this book where he talks about uh, going to some of his friends who were geographers and saying, how do you define a continent? And mm. he, he realized that defining a continent, and you're from uh, Australia, correct? Correct, yeah. So Australia is kind of like the Pluto of continents. Where it's <laughs> it like, really you, is, actually. That's funny. <laughs> is it an island? Is it a continent? You know, we could get pedantic about that. Is it a colony? Yeah. Well, that's right. And they don't even know. I mean, you see some things where they say like Australasia and then they'll include New Zealand and all the other sort of surrounding islands. And then right. you'll see other things that is just basically Australia. And then then you're like, well, what does that put New Zealand in? <laughs> like you can't say Australia is also New Zealand. It's this really confusing thing. Um, I actually, a while ago when I was at university, we were talking about this. I think this was pretty close to after the time that this Pluto thing happened. And we were saying, and one of my professors was saying uh, as well, that it, it is one of the things that because Pluto is something that everybody knows about, that's probably why it's more contentious because, you know, nerds sitting on their laptop want to make a meme about something and Pluto seems to fit the bill. If it was talking about, you know, the ability of a certain plastic to repel a certain type of protein and uh, they'd change the definition of that no one's probably going to be kicking up about it but the fact it's pluto is the thing that makes a difference um and as i've written a couple of things down here that i remember from i actually found on my hard drive some of the reasons that we talked about um why it isn't a planet and why you probably read in that book too um and there's three main things that i've written down you know the first thing the orbital path that you guys probably read about it's, it's a sort of different angle um it says here 17 degrees normal i wrote that so i don't know how true that is but it's 17 degrees to the normal and it's erratic and sometimes goes into neptune's orbit too apparently yeah that's true um, yeah, that's true, is it? Which is weird, which is super weird and scary. Like, one thing I thought about, why is there a time in the future they're going to crash into each other? If it's cyclic, isn't there going to be eventually going to hit each other? You know, I, th I think the distances are so vast. You know, we're talking about like... Billions think, and... Well, I was going to say, like, I think Pluto takes 200 plus years to orbit the sun, if I'm not yeah. uh, mistaken. And so when you're talking about that, like, it's a very big circle, a very big, you know... Or, so or the timeline of the universe is probably too short for it to actually even occur, something along those lines. Yeah, and, yeah. and actually um, the Voyager space probes, which uh, I think it was Voyager 2 visited 
not only Jupiter and Saturn, but Uranus and Neptune as well, mm-hmm. hitting four planets. But the only reason they were able to do that is there was this planetary alignment where they were all kind of relatively in the same neighborhood. You know, we see right. charts of the we see charts of the solar system, and you see you know moving from left to right, you see you know the sun, and then the planet yep. Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars. Yep. The, and the reality is they're all orbiting. You know, they have different uh, paths around the sun, and they're all orbiting yeah. at different distances from the sun. So sometimes Earth and Mars are relatively close to each other. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're very, very, very far away. Yes. And, and so you talk about the orbital path of you know Neptune and Pluto o- overlapping. Um, I don't think it's impossible that they could crash into each other, but I think statistically <laughs> speaking, it's probably not not very likely. Extremely so, timeline speaking, yeah, definitely. Well, it makes you I wonder. Do, yeah. It makes you wonder if that's the reason why it's off the norm, right? If some sort of True. collision or something like that caused it to to kick out of. Well, obviously, the weight of Neptune probably has something to do with it, right? Because all gravity affects all planets, so right. Well, and people have speculated that Pluto uh, might have been a moon of one of the outer planets uh, at one yeah. point because it is so tiny. It does look yeah. more like a moon in terms of its size. It looks more like a moon and um, got thrown out, right? That's why it's so far too. Yeah, and so that that's a possibility. But uh, mm-hmm. the strange thing is, is uh, Pluto is not has not been demoted because of its size, and to me that would have made more sense if they said it's a dwarf planet because a planet mm-hmm. has to be approximately this big X, in, yeah. in order to be a planet, which would be that would be I think a lot simpler in people's minds if they said, well, you mm-hmm. have to be this big to be a planet. Pluto's too small; it doesn't qualify. Yeah, uh, but it's it's based on it's purely based on real estate. It's purely based on how it orbits and where it is and what's mm-hmm. around it. Uh, it's so size doesn't really matter. You could have uh, theoretically, a very, very large dwarf planet, although all the dwarf planets that have been designated so far by the IAU are uh, quite small. Yeah, so it's more its more of a factor of it hasn't really cleared its path, right? Because it also goes into an asteroid belt, essentially, doesn't it? Or it goes close to it. It hasn't yeah. cleared its path in the same way that other planets have. <clears throat> yeah, and there's a lot of, you know, there's the Kuiper belt out there, you know, this kind uh-huh. of field of you know, chunks of ice and rock, this field of debris out there. I thought yep. Chris did a great job of pointing out that there were other moons that were bigger than Pluto. That yes. Were, that that <laughs> yeah. could, like, Which so are those planets? Are those not planets? Well, so you know? planets versus moons, again, it's a very clear definition because planets orbit a star, moons orbit a planet. And mm. so that's, I think, very clear in a lot of people's minds. But to your point, Blake... Um, there are some enormous moons out there. I think the second largest moon in the solar system is this world orbiting Saturn called uh, Titan, mm-hmm. which uh, has this very thick atmosphere and has oceans and rivers of liquid methane. It's a very strange uh, place, but it's about the same size as the planet Mars. Mm. Yeah, and, and but so, I think the factor is the ratio of sizes, right, between the planet and the and the moon. And this is another thing that I had written down as well is the fact that um, uh, Charon, the moon of Pluto, yes. right, the ratio of the size is uh, crazily different to the rest of the planets. And this was another factor that I thought was quite a big deal. So, for example, for most planets, I've written here usual planets such as Mars, Venus, and even you know when we're talking about Titan. Um, it's about one four, four thousandth of the size of the planet. So it's way, 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 way smaller, right? So it does completely orbit around the planet. Earth and moon, the Earth and the moon are actually kind of in a binary system. So they kind of actually orbit each other. And when you look at projections of it, the center of mass 
of that system is actually quite far away from the center of the mass of the Earth, which is strange. And when well, you look and, at it, you can and see And they it. say that the Earth's moon is a very strange case because even though the Earth is clearly larger than the Earth's moon, uh, it's a very strange case because there aren't any uh, tiny rocky planets like the Earth that have a large moon like we do. I True. Think, I think the Earth's moon is the fifth largest moon in the entire solar system. That doesn't surprise me. And I was just about to say here, the race, so usual planets is one four, four thousandth. And then the Earth and the moon, it's only a difference of 81. So it's one 81st, 81st. I don't know how you say that. But yeah, the difference is a ratio of one to 81. That's how close they are in size, the Earth and the moon, which is really weird when you think about it because you kind of view the moon as this, you know, thing that seems to be, yeah, it's there. It doesn't seem to be that big, but it really is quite close in size to Earth. But then when we talk about Pluto and Charon, it's, um, you can make that smaller. So it's two seventeenths, two seventeenths. So that would wow. be, you know, about one ninth the size. So it really is quite similar. At the, uh, at the Fisk Planetarium in uh, mm-hmm. Colorado, where, uh, where I used to do these presentations, they had a wonderful animation of Pluto and Charon looking at their orbits. And you get a sense of uh, how it's not really Sharon orbiting Pluto or Pluto yeah. orbiting Sharon. They're kind of orbiting each other, exactly as you described. Uh, yeah. But but you almost have to see that visualized in an animation to really appreciate how bizarre it is. So hard to think, yeah. And But like I said, even with the Earth and the Moon, I've seen projections of that, and you look at it and you're like, Does, is that really how we move? Like we're sort of wobbling almost like that because we're going around some weird central point and it's not like Earth and then Moon going around it normally. It's It's quite hard to get your head around. So um, you have a, you're working off some notes there? I actually scribbled down a couple of notes just purely because uh, I wanted to, you know, I, li- I really liked the podcast you did. I thought it was cool. And um, this, this is something that I've talked about a lot just with friends and stuff, not on a podcast format. And I was quite interested in it. Um, first of all, interested in the Pluto thing in general because it was sort of happening a lot around the time that I was, I guess, really into physics. We've been wanting to do this episode for a while because Pluto does have a, a, a soft spot in a lot of people's hearts. Yeah, and, and like you talked about in the, the podcast podcast too, about New Horizons and these incredible pictures we got, it, got of it. And uh, it, it's really changed the opinions, I think, from this really far out, unimportant rock to suddenly like this cute, almost like anthropomorphized planet in some sort of strange way well and for most of our lifetimes pluto we didn't really have clear pictures of pluto i think the best thing we had is this blob that the hubble space telescope captured Mm -hmm. that was completely you know without any uh definition and there was lots of there were lots of interesting artist renderings of what pluto might look like Mm -hmm. Uh, but we hadn't we haven't really gotten a a up close look at it until uh, very very recently well, and all yeah, no, of, definitely. all the the rock star astronomers came out to have an opinion on the matter as well, which caused <laughs> a lot of uproar. I did want to mention that earlier too. Like we're talking about, it's maybe more important because it's closer at the hearts of people. Like I said, if it was about some plastic or something else that's uninteresting, people wouldn't care as much. And then the other factor is, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson and other sort of popular culture scientists coming out, saying things about it. Whenever you get famous people saying something, even if it's not a scientist, there's going to be people that are going to want to sort of nip the heels of them or at least try and say, I'm smarter than you, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. We're, we're on our, our continuous uh, campaign to, to bash Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Well, I, I happen to feel 
overrated. I'll, I'll put it that way. And I think that anybody who is okay. a, a populari- popularizer of science, that's a word. Um, evangelist. We, yeah. we had this discussion a, on another episode. Yeah, an, an evangelist of science, someone who brings science into the mainstream. Uh, I commend them. I think that's a very uh, noble goal. And I, I think uh, in a little mm. bit we're going to talk about uh, Percival yeah. Lowell, who was another such figure where he made science something mm. popular that like laymen were – uh, finding you know very intriguing, and it wasn't something you know it wasn't some obscure area of academia. They made it so. I think that's something really Correct. positive that Neil deGrasse Tyson does. I've spoken to several people who have met Neil deGrasse Tyson who say that he's a little bit uh, arrogant, a little bit smug, that he, he's he's kind of uh, high on his own ego. So that's part of it, and I think uh, he kind of injects his politics into. Uh, a lot of what he has to say about science. One of the examples that we gave in a previous podcast is that he talks about, uh, are you familiar with who Giordano Bruno was? No, please enlighten me. So Giordano Bruno, we talked about this in a previous episode, was, uh, I guess, a a monk or priest in uh, the Catholic Church, and he came out preaching a lot of these doctrines that were uh, heretical, and he was executed by the Catholic Church. But uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson sort of in his program, uh, Cosmos, portrays Giordano Bruno as this brave martyr for science who is willing to stand up for fundamental scientific principles and the Catholic Church executed him for it. Well, in, um, and Gi- there's some truth to that in that Giordano Bruno said that he says, I think this Copernican doctrine that the earth orbits the sun and the sun does not orbit the earth, I think that's something that I believe in. Uh, I think it's possible there might be life on other planets. So there are some areas where Giordano Bruno was very much ahead of his time, but basically uh, he was he was not so much a martyr for science as he was a guy who just uh, really thought outside the box and wanted to be uh, a priest or a monk in the Catholic Church and to preach heretical doctrines. And a lot mm. of the, the things that Giordano Bruno preached, uh, I'm not saying by any means that he deserved to be executed for uh, his beliefs or for coming out against the, uh, the Catholic Church's doctrine, but a lot of the things that Giordano Bruno believed were not scientific in any way, shape, or form. He believed in magic. He believed that uh, animals had... Uh, souls, the way human beings had souls, and uh, just a, just a lot of very bizarre things that we would consider to be uh, supernatural uh, mm. b- beliefs that were um, that had nothing to do with science. And he wasn't a scientist either; he was, you know, uh, a monk. And so, Kat, I think uh, G- uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I feel like, kind of romanticizes Giordano Bruno as this. Uh, brave scientist and astronomer, when in reality he really wasn't any of those things. He was just a person who had different superstitious beliefs than the mm-hmm. religious organization that he was a member of. So th- things like, but I, but I think Neil deGrasse Tyson does that because Neil deGrasse Tyson um, isn't afraid to stir up the debate between science and religion and uh, to kind of paint religion as uh, sort of a force for evil in the world and science is a force for good. Now, religion has indeed been a force for evil in the world, so I can't say that there aren't a, a countless examples of that throughout human history. But I think uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is very, just very politically and ideologically opinionated. Mm. Yeah, and, I understand. I and you know I agree quite a lot as well. I I um I sort of have a hierarchy of what you'd say like popular culture 
scientists in my head you know which ones i prefer for certain reasons and which ones i don't and very much at the top of the list for me is obviously carl sagan um we're and big fans Brian, of carl sagan uh, if you're not a fan of carl sagan what are you a fan of in science for sure he's he's honestly you know no one can argue that what he was doing wasn't an overall positive effect uh and politically as well he took it from a really skeptical scientific point of view in a time around the Cold War, which is so important. Mm. Um, but anyway, not to kiss Carl Sagan's ass too much because that'll be the whole episode. But uh, <laughs> yeah. um, the, the other one is Brian Cox. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Brian oh, yeah. Cox, really. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. I love Brian Cox. He's, uh, he's so, uh, I don't want to say like middle of the road or on the fence all the time, but he's so like um, really open to things, uh, very flowing and very soft uh, with his ideas and you hear him talk about religion and stuff a lot and he's, he, he talks about it in in a manner which is so even Carl Sagan-esque you know he talks about it in a way like I remember him talking I can't remember what podcast he was on uh, but he, he was, was on talking Rogan about, recently he was on Rogan recently he's been on a couple others um, but he was talking about the fact that like it might have been on the Rogan one about spirituality you know how what more do you want when it comes to spirituality you know we were made inside of stars and uh you know you talk about god being um all there ever was and you know you can just skip a step and the universe is that and things like this and just the way he talks about it is not like this confrontational political way like neil degrasse tyson might be um it's in a very positive helpful way for the world and i do respect him for that um i did want to also say uh, you're talking about martyrs in the mentions of, mention of martyrs. And I think that's a weird thing when we talk about martyrs in general, because I think most people we consider martyrs probably didn't want ne- want to necessarily be martyrs. It wasn't their plan to die for a certain cause. They just become martyrs afterwards, basically. And, uh, you know, I think he's obviously saying that because it gets people more interested. It's like this battle between science and religion and it gets people more fired up and interested in it uh but i guess the reality of this situation is sometimes we have to have martyrs that weren't necessarily planning on being martyrs or didn't consider themselves martyrs you know yeah and and in fairness i I do want to say uh, i'm not suggesting that scientists shouldn't have opinions about Mm. politics and religion because uh they're the most informed they should right yeah absolutely and I think if, if we all look back to our favorite teachers in school, it was, it's usually a teacher who had an opinion about something, who had something to say and wasn't Someone afraid strong, right? to share it. Yeah, rather than a teacher who was dedicated to being completely objective you know, throughout the entire semester and never shared their opinion on the subject that they were teaching. Mm. And you, know, you mentioned Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan absolutely had a lot to say during the Cold War. And... Uh, was politically involved, and, mm-hmm. and I still I still think Carl Sagan, uh, even though on the political spectrum he's probably fairly close to where Neil deGrasse Tyson is, that is to say, you know, fairly left leaning. Uh, but I think uh, I think when we talk about Brian Cox or Carl Sagan, or one of my favorites is uh, Michu Kaku. Mm. Yep. Yeah. When when we talk about um, these people and how accomplished they were as scientists. And also how accomplished they were as evangelists for science, and then compare them side by side with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I find Neil deGrasse Tyson to be kind of overrated in contrast. Yeah, I no, I agree with you. Honestly, I think I feel like most of the popular culture scientists are quite overrated. Um, 
Brian Green is one I have a bit of a problem with. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a lot of scientists that really push an ideal uh, because the general public enjoy listening about it, which is cool. I, I understand that, but it does sort of, once it gets to that sort of fork in the road, it's getting to the point where, okay, now you're just doing this because it's your job to do and not necessarily the original idea, which was to try and um, increase the body of knowledge and see, you know, when we talk about string theory and things like that. Well, and I, w- I was just going to say that Brian Green, he uh, talks about string theory. And so if you watch a documentary hosted by Brian Green, there was actually an interesting three-part uh, series that uh, Nova did about mm-hmm. string theory. And so if you watch a documentary with Brian Green as the host or you read one of his books, you begin to think of string theory as like, oh, well, this is this has got to be the the greatest you know theory since Sir Isaac mm. Newton. This has got to be the way we unify all of physics. This is amazing. And then you what you don't realize, looking at things through Brian Greene's sort of rose colored glasses in regards to string theory, what you don't realize is it's incredibly contentious and controversial oh. and ridiculed by many physicists. Oh, completely. And that's that's what I'm that's what I mean. Is I actually saw saw him live and actually met him as well, which is really cool. And he's such a nice guy, but he has this like um, same to what I imagine Neil deGrasse Tyson has, like oozing of this sort of American charisma. You know, like being on TV, like I, I'm telling you this, and it's going into your head, and it just works for people uh, in a different way that. Carl Sagan or Brian Cox has it. And I did want to say one thing as well. I almost forgot it, but you mentioned Newton again uh, there. You know, you were saying that about this martyr thing again, how this monk, although he did a lot of great things and he shouldn't have been executed, he also talked a lot of nonsense, a lot of silly things. Um, And, you know, I think that is something that often in science we need to make an effort to disregard and separate and forget a lot. And the reason I say that is because people who maybe have some a little little bit out their ideas, at least they're on the sort of border and on the edge of scientific endeavors. They're trying to do new things. And a perfect example of that is Newton, because in his later stages of life, famously, he was trying to study alchemy and turn things into gold. <laughs> and this was the guy that, at the, what is it, 23, he invented calculus, going from something that's so important to the world to suddenly trying to make gold, you know? Well, and it, it's... It's strange when you look at some of the the most brilliant physicists in that they did their their best work. They were probably younger than we are yeah. uh, when they when they did it, and then became international celebrities. And you look at where they went later on. You know, they they peaked very early on. It's kind of like uh, I don't know if you're a movie buff, but Orson Welles. They always said was this guy. Who Same thing, right? Was incredibly talented. Directed <laughs> Citizen Kane, and then you know, as as his career progressed, he just kind of became a drunk. Like he wasn't <laughs> particularly. Yeah, but um, uh, Albert Einstein. I've read some very interesting things about Albert Einstein. How in the in the later years of his life, you know, he was interested in a unification theory for physics, but his, his ideas just got more and more kooky. And he mm. and as as we learn more about the universe around us, he kind of he, he almost either didn't integrate it into his worldview or just kind of ignored it because clutching he, at straws, maybe. Yeah, and and yeah. so he he had also peaked uh, very early on. So I don't know what that is. You know, it might but it's, have- it's it's a factor definitely. There's there's actually a story. I can't remember any specific stories which I'm bit annoying now but uh, there's a similar thing with Lord Kelvin um, when he in his earlier days did it was basically chemistry was hardly even a thing before Lord Kelvin was around those bits but what he did for chemistry was just incredible and um, then at the end of his life 
he had notions that he wanted to prove and he just kept proving and that you know the next generation was disproving countless times again and they were in this strange situation where he was obviously probably having issues with alzheimer's but he was at this high sort of level in university and they had to sort of listen to him listen to his crap basically it's 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 something that again does happen and i think it's important to be on that sort of strange border of craziness to logic to actually make any sort of movements or change well and you have to wonder about those times as well because i mean you know just 50 years ago like the use of narcotics and the use of a bunch of other like hallucinogenic kind of drugs was commonplace and and used in in everyday products so i'm sure people's that's true actually concepts of of reality and what the what human experience was was completely different than where we are now especially with us having the internet and being able Mm -hmm. to, to do things like this where you're in a completely different country on the other side of the world, and we can have mm-hmm. uh, just a regular conversation like we're sitting at a cafe somewhere. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's like something you don't really even sit there and you know think about. <laughs> I, I uh, had a, I think it was a sociology class where they referred to that as the death of distance, mm-hmm. as yeah. the idea that, that distance was something that people were so profoundly preoccupied with just 100 years ago, and now it's something that we really don't, don't think much about. That's a cool concept. That's a cool yeah. concept. You can get on a plane and go, you know, anywhere in the world. So that's literally the death of distance is not just conversations. Mm-hmm. But if we want, if we wanted to come record with you in person, we could, you know, theoretically, if we had the money to do it, we could, you know, see you tomorrow. Do it within 24 hours. Easy. Yep. Yeah. Like, it's not that difficult. You know, yeah. you just got to have the cash. And I did want to mention as well this. I'm sorry if I'm taking your, you know, show off track a little bit. Another thing that I've written down when we talk, because, you, you know, we mentioned monks and religion and the association with physics. Um, one cool thing about your episode was the concept of um, unlikely people basically being physicists or doing incredible scientific things. Yeah. You know, he came from poverty. I think that's a pretty common, not common, but I think it's a story that does reoccur in places in science because the cool thing about science and nature is it's there regardless of how much money you have. Obviously, money just usually helps you find it because you have the right equipment and stuff. But there's a famous guy, I'm not sure if you've heard of, who's Australian who is a astronomer and his name is Robert Evans and he um he has the record for discovering the most supernova in the universe he's discovered 42 oh. separate supernova and he also happens to be a very very high up minister for the united church in australia as well and has written texts about religion very sort of conservative and i've seen documentaries with him and it's this bizarre you know, when we talk about religion, how can you look at 42 different supernovas that you've discovered? He's been an astronomer all his life, yet he believes some very sort of archaic religious things. I don't think he's strictly Old Testament, but I think there's a lot of things that he does sort of believe. I I don't know how he can see literally the birth of material in these supernova, but also have in his mind that everything was created by God. Yeah, and so that's that's an interesting example because it's very rare today that science science is very much a secular endeavor today. Mm-hmm. But I think the you know one I think one of the problems that I have with Neil deGrasse Tyson's narrative of science versus religion is it's historically inaccurate to some extent because if you go back a few hundred years, uh, there were a lot of scientists who were very religious uh, people and in, indeed people who were involved with the church. Um, mm. Copernicus, we did a, a, an episode about uh, Copernicus and Galileo. Copernicus was a, a Polish priest 
who yeah. did astronomy on the side. So it's, it wasn't always a secular, I think today it's very much a secular endeavor, but it wasn't always uh, scientists in a secular sphere creating these wonderful discoveries Versus. and church officials persecuting them. It was yeah. you know, church officials doing science. Well, yeah. I think that but, the, the problem with that is that's the way that history's been written about European history mm. way, way back in the day, right before the the schism in the church. The Reformation. The Reformation, excuse me. Um, that the history books themselves are written that it was a science versus religious religion, the Catholic Church endeavor, mm. and that it that it wasn't necessarily they weren't unified in any way, and so it's it's short coming for or it's unbecoming for Neil deGrasse Tyson not to be able to see through that uh, historical context and say that really the reason why those those divisions existed was just because of other things other than just like scientists being the ones mm. to say that that's what they wanted it. sort of external factors as well yeah right yeah and I guess the only thing I agree because it, it you know most the, the the origins of astronomy was from priests basically right the origins of it really was from religion because they cared about the heavens essentially um but you know to play devil's advocate with that a little bit is the fact that it might not necessarily be a function of they can hold religion and science together but more a function of the time and the fact that you everybody was religious and you had to be religious mm. and that was kind of what it is and you know there was obviously instances of genuine martyrs that were um you know attacked or executed or whatever it might be for their beliefs in science and i do think there is one thing that neil degrasse tyson i think he is the original one that said it that um you know religion is an ever sort of retreating type of science essentially right it originally was science in the way that it was trying to explain the the natural world and the universe and now it's just ever retreating you know originally it was like uh, well, you know, what is in the heavens? And then, well, we look up and we find out what's in the heavens, then it has to retreat a little bit more. And it's like, well, what is this? And then we find that out and it has to retreat a little bit more. And where did life come from? We find evolution and it has to retreat a little bit more. And it's just ever, ever sort of going. And the reason it is much more secular now, I guess, is purely because an individual doesn't have to be religious and it has retreated much further than it would have in the 1600s or something. Yeah, no, you make a very uh, interesting point about just the secularization, not only of science, but of, of the world that we live in. And yeah, very much it is the case that people were just very religious. You go back 100 years, you, you, you have to risk such severe social ostracization mm. just to, to be an atheist 100 years ago. Uh, I, I went to... You might find this amusing as, a, as an Australian. I went to lived in Texas and went to a religious school... Mm -hmm. uh, growing up, my my mother always told me, uh, "You were such a bad student. We thought they would be nicer to you if we sent you to a Christian school because Christians are supposed <laughs> to be very forgiving." <laughs> That's funny, but so, That's good. So I had a, a. It was very strange when they started talking about evolution and creationism, and they did talk about creationism at this school, and they said, "Well, a lot of people don't know this, but Charles Darwin was a dedicated Christian." And it's like, "Well, okay, but wasn't everybody?" <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no, literally, yeah, and, and there is. I remember as well, I, you know, because I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever been to Australia, but it is very, it's a very right-wing country, and mm -hmm. I've heard and expect that it has a lot of similarities to those sort of parts of the US. You know, we, it's such a huge country, it's the same size as the US, basically. 
you know, back in the day, it essentially was like the Wild West is, you know, it's a lot of similarities. Um, and I remember I didn't actually finish school. So I had to do a science college course to be able to get into university. And um, huh. I remember everyone was interested. Everyone enjoyed it. It was all good. And then we had we had a lot of sort of minorities there, a lot of people who were of the Islamic faith, uh, Jewish folk, a lot of different religions. Um, and then I remember when we started talking about biology and uh, then we got into the topic of evolution. And we had been in this, doing this science course for eight months and everything was fine. And everyone agreed and everyone believed it. And then suddenly there was problems. And I, I, I remember just have, sitting there thinking to myself, why was all this other cr- stuff that is w- far crazier, far more ridiculous, like the fact that the electron doesn't just spin and fall into the nucleus of an atom, like things like electromagnetism, right. think gravity, things that have no why answer to them. And then we get to evolution that is just statistics basically it's just glorified statistics and people started getting upset it was such a bizarre day and really is imprinted in my mind the emotional connections people do have to certain um not beliefs but certain sort of discoveries i guess you could say i remember that exact same moment in my high school science course in biology where like you're on this course of learning like all the different parts of a cell and all like the naming mm. things as you're going through, right? And then you get to the the part of biology where they start discussing like why are things this way? You know, why <laughs> why did the things grow to be this way? And and like that one day I remember because we had a very uh, Christian uh, biology teacher. So I don't remember if she did this because of her beliefs or because of it was just the way that Colorado, the state of Colorado where we went to high school, uh, required that it was taught. But they did like, so there are two ideas of how this happened. Mm. There's the belief in evolution that all of the, we began as shrews and then we grew into being human beings. But then there's this (laughs) also this other idea that the, the people have believed for a long time yeah. that uh, that the God was here and He put us here. Yeah, isn't it? It's so it's so weird. It's like, yeah, mitochondria understand check osmosis understand check. Uh, the sun is a million times bigger than Earth check. That's totally normal. Uh, electromagnetism, light can go like this check. Whoa, 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 whoa. So things change. Well, s- slow down. Like <laughs> it's <Yeah>. bizarre. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is funny how contentious that is. And, you know, you talk about learning about all these other things. There there were many times in the past where, <laughs> for the most part, I say for the most part because flat earthers exist, but for the most oh, part, we, we accept <clears throat> that uh, the earth is spinning and going around the sun. Well, that's very, that seems very counterintuitive because it doesn't feel like we're moving right now. Yes. We talk about that in our uh, podcast on Galileo. So, uh, but that was, that was a huge point of contention with the Catholic Church, and one of the reasons why Galileo was persecuted by the Catholic Church uh, for embracing the ideas of Copernicus was this idea that the earth uh, spins, because there's some, there's a biblical story uh, about a character who holds his, his hands 
in the uh, air and, and commands the sun to stop moving and through the power of God the sun stops moving and the logic of the Catholic Church which was very bizarre was well in this story it says the sun stopped moving and that implies that the sun was moving before and if you say that the sun is stationary and the earth is going around it then you're, this is in contradiction of, of scripture which is which is very funny that that was a very contentious issue well, but now just, it's just one small line as well you know yeah yeah and I guess there there were other you know, there are other passages in the Bible that alluded yeah. to that, but it was just, it's just very strange. And, you know, the only thing that I would say about uh, creationism and particularly young earth creationism is the most bizarre because that, that states that the earth is only about 6,000 years old, mm. which is ridiculously young when you think of the actual geological uh, timescale. But well, the human timescale is much longer than 6,000 years, you know, it's sure. And so I yeah. think, I think, scientists should always be uh, open-minded and be willing to embrace ideas that are very different than, from ideas that they had embraced previously. Because the other thing that we talk about in our Galileo episode is, you know, not only did the Catholic Church really push back against uh, the ideas of Copernicus, but most astronomers believed that the sun was going around the earth. Mm. So the vast majority of astronomers, and of course, again, a lot of those are Catholic astronomers working for the church, but a lot of astronomers thought that was the case. So it turned out that everything that we believed about physics and astronomy in the 1600s was completely wrong. It was completely mm. backwards. So I think scientists should be willing to embrace completely paradigm-shifting ideas that involve discarding a lot of their own knowledge. And I think scientists can sometimes, understandably, like any group of people, be reluctant to do that because it is mm. so um, drastic. And to take like the, the very foundational beliefs of any institution and toss them out and say, well, maybe we were wrong. Maybe it's like this instead. I think science should be willing to do that. However, I would say that what I don't like about creationism, what I don't like about that being taught in schools is the fact that science, the foundation of science should be that we, we observe the world around us and we you know, create a hypothesis and draw some sort of conclusion. And creationism fundamentally is we have our conclusion. Now let's observe the world around us and see if we can find anything and everything, cherry pick it and fit it into that conclusion. Just yeah, like flat earth. Opposites, right? It's literally opposites. So uh, one weird thing that sort of happened to me um, while I was writing my bachelor's thesis, and I had this moment that I think a lot of scientists have. Um, I was basically working on making non-fouling surfaces for use in biomedical implants, right? So if you get a hip replacement or something like that, one of the biggest issues is blood sticks to it, bacteria sticks to it, you get an infection, you have to remove it or you die. It's re really a huge problem, one of the biggest problems. And uh, we create surfaces, so basically it's essentially non-stick. And um, hmm. we were, for my thesis, trying to do different shapes. So we were doing these microparticles and trying to put this coating on there to see the effect of that. Um, and I spent months on it, months, 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 and literally none of it worked. Like none of it worked at all. I thought it worked, it kind of seemed to work, and then I took it to a few of the professors and they were like, no, this is, nothing's worked, nothing's happened. And I was like trying to write my thesis and I was like, maybe I can just change a couple of things here. And I was like, wow, I bet there's been a thousand scientists in the past Fine. who have thought this exact thing. And I've only worked on it for months. Imagine having 10 years 
of working on something 20 years your whole life's work and then some other scientist comes along and go oh this is wrong because and then you're just going oh i've literally wasted my entire existence well i think there's something that i've i've talked to Blake here about called uh, I think it's the gambler's paradox or so, some psychological principle in gambling where like you justify more ga- the more you lose the more you, you're justifying more gambling because you're like Something I've lost right. I've lost so much money gambling tonight that I have to continue gambling because then all the money I have lost will have been in vain but I can still yeah. win it back if I keep gambling. <laughs> Yeah, keep going, keep going. I'm sure many people. I've even felt that myself. I think, to be honest with you, like even just spending twenty dollars at a casino or something like that for fun, you kind of get that emotional connection to gambling. It's weird. Or you have one good night playing blackjack, and you think you've got blackjack figured out. <laughs> you got it figured out. Yeah, this stuff's <laughs> easy. Why is no one else doing this? <laughs> That's funny. Um, one other thing that I was going to say as well is. Uh, It's the thing is I think other scientists have said it is the fact that the, the the process of science is perfect, right? The idea of science it's it's a perfect process, but then when you sprinkle in humans into the equation uh, and beliefs, that's when you got start to get issues. That's the actual problem. It's not the individuals. Uh, it's it's not sorry the the actual process itself. It's the in- individuals, right? That's where well it comes said. from. Well, that and when you start to look at. Because I really think that the idea of statistics is where the biggest problem that we're having in science is, is that you look at if a, a majority of the results that you're, you're trying to, that you're theorizing about are meeting mm-hmm. this, this statistics so like of a way that human beings behave. If the majority, more than 50% fall into that, then your theory is in the new the new form of where science is trying to go, it's confirmed. And so it's considered to be a theory that, that could be like justifiably true. Whereas like in actual science, the idea is you come up with a theory mm. that is tested all over the place. And if it is proven incorrect in another area of like in another, by another scientist testing out the exact experiment that you've done, then it's found, you know, Improbable, implausible, or that you know there are things that need to be restudied about your theory. Yeah, and I think that's why, um, I think that's why biology in general gets more levels of, uh, I guess, disbelief or levels of woo, whatever you want to call it, um, purely because you know biology is so complex and hard to uh, hard to get definite numbers on you know when you talk about physics it's much more mathematical and things like that biology it's so complex and you can't climb inside the body to ask how a cell works in the same way that you can sort of climb inside the universe and uh, understand how that works and that that's that's a strange concept and that's why you get so much nonsense saying like you know if you use these crystals you're not going to get sick and that kind of crap because it's it's like it's you it's so hard to disprove that. It's, right. it, if if you said you can use this crystal and gravity won't work anymore, pretty easy to disprove. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, biology and biology and astronomy, I think, are comparable in the sense that if you don't have a microscope or a telescope, there's a lot of the world around us or the universe around us that is completely ob- obscured from us. And mm. just looking at a diagram of a cell inside of a textbook 
it's uh it seems very abstract yeah that's a good point actually right it doesn't seem like real like i'm made of this i feel solid but i'm made of little cells it doesn't make sense it, well but if it see the crazy thing for me the way i've always looked at it is that it's it's all macro and micro all at the same time because if mm. you think of the universe like if you think of the earth like we're just a cell in this grand body of the universe like it feels very much that way we're we have an understanding of you know how the physics of earth work but then you move outside of earth and things start to get squirrely you know we don't know necessarily how everything works like on other planets in the solar system you know because who knows what uh like if the gravitational effects of a black hole change things on mm. a planet that's very close to a black hole compared to the way that things are when you're around a star you know yeah definitely definitely you know it's 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 impossible again you know we talk about scales macro it's so hard to make understandings on you know that kind of basis purely because we're never going to be able to get in a rocket ship and go a million light years away and uh go stand on a planet and actually do some experiments in a little lab there you know well don't say never you're really really (laughs) dashing my hopes there sorry sorry i didn't mean to be like that um yeah, it, it does remind me, though, of... Uh, did you ever see a science fiction film from the 1950s called The Incredible Shrinking Man? I have not seen it, but I definitely know of it. There, there's uh, He makes some sort of very interesting speech at the very end of the movie that's kind of um, kind of transcendent, kind of spiritual, kind of weird, but he, he says... Uh, and it, it's written by this guy, uh, Richard Matheson, who mm-hmm. uh, used to write episodes of The Twilight Zone, a very talented science fiction author, but he says... Uh, the uh, incredibly small and the enormously large eventually meet like the closing of an enormous circle. Wow, that's cool. I like that a lot. And, uh, you know, truly what we're looking at in science now uh, is general relativity and quantum mechanics can't really be unified. You know, you can't really apply general rel- relativity to the things that are very small. You can't really yeah. apply quantum mechanics to the things that are very large that general relativity explains. Yeah, so where's the wall? Yeah, well, and it's kind of like what... so full disclosure i'm going back to school after a time mm-hmm. off so i'm studying mechanical engineers so I, mechanical engineering so i'm going through the process of like studying the chemistry studying mm-hmm. the physics of everything in this in the world or in the universe at the, in, in, to that effect mm-hmm. and it's been to do it as an older person it's completely it reshapes your whole understanding of how things actually work and it makes you feel incredibly humble that you were able to make it that i was able to make it so long with with so little information about how you know science act like the 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 pieces and parts of physics of chemistry of how like matter Mm. actually behaves because you brought up the whole idea about you know why don't electrons fall into uh, the nucleus or mm-hmm. whatever and it's just like there there's so that's the stuff that's so mystifying about science that i think that we don't address as a society that it's like we know so much but like the more the more you do know the more things get really confusing well a, a quote we use in our podcast has yes. kind of become my new mantra uh, for life it's a john f kennedy quote where uh he said, we meet in an age of both knowledge and ignorance, and the greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds. Mm. And uh, It's about right. Yeah, and, and I would say that uh, 
there's so much about the universe that is strange and almost counterintuitive. And I, I loved your story, how it seems so bizarre and so illogical that you could go through an, an entire semester learning about so many strange and wonderful ideas in science and people just kind of, and then you get to evolution mm. and everybody seems to get yeah. upset and say, well, why would it be that way? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it's a weird thing of the fact that we, um, especially younger people going off to what you said before about studying as an older person, it's a different relationship. Um, I think, you know, younger people, if they go, you know, middle school, high school, college straight away, it's like, they're just, they're just yeah. studying to pass the exams, right? They're not actually, there's no rationalization of what they're learning necessarily. They're just studying to pass the exams and that's about the long and the short of it. And uh, I guess being an older person is, you know, you're doing it for much different motivations and much different reasons. Um, and I think that is a big thing when it comes to, you know, technology. Quite often we're just learning these things for the fact of making a new product or whatever it might be. But going back to what Brian Cox said is like the, the actual reasons and the things behind these things are yeah. arguably like the most spiritual thing you could possibly even imagine. It is it the the reality of what is happening is the wooiest, most ridiculous thing you could ever possibly hear. You think of something that is nonsense and the reality of what happening is happening is way more interesting and way more over the top than we can even you know, make well, fiction it's funny about. You basically. brought up Brian Green, and I loved. Or you brought up Brian Green. No, I think. Uh, or you both brought up Brian Green. He's actually yeah, met Brian I brought Green. Brought up Brian Green, yeah. And uh, you talked about his three-part Nova special, and I remember there was a particular summer. I think it was after my my eleventh year in high school. So it was that summer, and I went to the library and I rented a bunch of DVDs, uh, documentary stuff. This is all before Netflix, kids. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, of course. I remember getting that Nova special and then right shortly thereafter, I remember watching what the bleep do we know and being like, what the, the world is so squirrely. <laughs> There's so much I don't understand. Have, have you seen what the bleep do we know? I haven't seen it, but I've heard Americans talk about it. So it's it's a very interesting film in that there's definitely like real science in there, but some of it's also a little bit woo woo for for yeah, lack okay. of a better word. So it's it's, it's like it's, the secret if you know anything about like yeah, the idea I know about of the, the secret. secret. <laughs> so yeah, you almost have to. I've read some interesting pieces. There's probably a lot uh, on the internet about it, but it's almost like something that you have to dissect and peel mm. away the very the very real, very interesting science from the stuff that's. Um, maybe a little bit pseudoscientific. Well, what's weird about it, and the reason why it feels so real, is that they they actually interview physicists. Like, I think Michio Kaku is in What the Bleep Do We Know? Wow. And, okay. And so that's why, because I had seen, I think Michio Kaku is also in the Nova doc- documentary by Brian Cox. Brian or Green. Brian, Brian Green, wow. excuse me. And, and I remember just like, what? What is this world like? Because mm-hmm. it, it it is so strange. Really, the the crux of what the bleep do we know is that like the whole idea of if you shout at a plant, it's not going to grow as well as if you were to like talk kindly to it or things okay, like that. Okay, okay, and that that like everything in the universe kind of uh, feeds off positive or negative energy. Yes. Yeah, that's a weird one. That's a weird one that's simultaneously true and not true at the same time, right? Like it's it's definitely not true, but there's truth to it. <laughs> welcome to the tor- tor- welcome to the 21st century where we're trying to figure that out again. 
you know. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, I mean, you know, if you you just talk about the basics of it, you know, if you get somebody who is just negative, you know, whatever, he, he or she is going to have a much different existence than the positive person. It doesn't mean that their energy is coming out and making the universe change around it, but it does mean things are going to occur. Yeah, well, it has something to do with uh, human psychology, and I think that yeah. that's always something that we need to be uh, mindful of. And I, I think what you said was... Uh, very well put about science that we you know we have to remember uh, that the structure of science itself as a discipline might be really really good, but human beings are still these these flawed emotional beings that are trying to mm-hmm. work within that that structure. Yeah, definitely. Um, can we talk about Mars? Yes, uh, I was actually <laughs> just going to try to pick your brain about Mars because we just finished a two part uh, podcast series on uh, wow. on the planet Mars. And, right. and I, I unfortunately we weren't able to get you in for that after talk, but I know that this is uh, you can explain to us your your sort of expertise uh, on this topic. I definitely wouldn't say expertise, but I, I do have a real I have a bit of a fascination with Mars in general. Um, you know, when it just comes to books, sci fi and I really liked the thing uh, that you had about the canals you you know you talked about mars canals right. i've written a couple of things about that because that is something that i've read a lot about and i find quite fascinating but yeah at university i basically did a research project that was um comparing and contrasting the mars mission profiles of nasa and of mars one um not a lot of people have heard of mars one but yeah mars one is i think it's a dutch company that wants to basically do a one-way trip to mars and colonize um right and they, and I was and comparing. they might not be able to fund it because i think the, what they wanted to do is they said we'll have a reality tv show on the surface yeah. of mars and that, that will pay exactly for it and said. so it's it's very uh, far-fetched i don't think they're going to succeed it's such a weird thing, and yeah, but the, you know they had all their uh, their science science behind it, quote unquote, published, so it was quite easy to find. Um, and yeah, it was just a compare and contrast of that. Just the launch phase, basically getting to Mars, not actually being on Mars. Um, so I spent quite a bit of time doing that, and uh, basically, it's, if if you're listening, you're a Mars One a- astronaut, you're gonna die. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna die probably quite quickly as well. It was just so horrendous, and to the point where I was reading some of the stuff they were saying and comparing the what they actually needed to do or the realities, and going, "How are people trying to sign up for this? Why are they not doing more research into it? Like it's their actual life. They're not even gonna make the planet, let alone colonize and be healthy." Everybody wants to make a cake, so in order to make the cake, you gotta break a few eggs, right? Unfortunately. What? If it's Mars One, a lot of eggs. Yeah. You need one, you need two eggs for the cake, and you're breaking a whole dozen. You, Let's put it that way. You know, way. we did a, a series, a podcast series on the space race, and it was very strange. After they sent up uh, Sputnik, the first artificial satellite, uh, the Soviet government had letters from people all around the world saying, like, well, I, I would love to be the first person in space. Please send me up. And it got to the point where they, they were receiving letters from people who were in prison, who had received life sentences in prison, saying, you don't have to bring me back. I don't care if I die during the journey. Wow. Just just send me up. People were that anxious. So what I wanted to say about the canals, like this canal thing I think is really cool because I think it's this thing where it's this sort of accident or mistake in science that I think if you look back, it happens a lot. It occurs a lot where it's different translations or different ideas or different opinions. And then it sort of shapes the future of the idea of that concept. And this canals thing is, you know, definitely one of them. Um, 
and there's something that I've written here because uh, there's a stack of books that came out as a result of this canal thing, and I think it, I think it's maybe the the sole reason that well the biggest reason the major reason why we have such a fascination with mars on a different level than what we do with venus or whatever else like that we know we think about the martians we think about it's it's this it's close to us so it's the the first sort of planet that we've had a real fascination with you know we couldn't see pluto with the naked eye of course uh things like that and um i think it's really shaped you know i've got like lists of books that are writers that have talked about these canals ray bradbury c.s lewis robertson crusoe it's in that as well like countless people and there was a quote that I came across um, from Carl Jung you know the famous psychologist Carl Jung and this was from his first dissertation Uh, he was speaking to a 15 year old in hospital um, about a supernatural experience that this 15 year old had at a seance so someone who's clearly probably quite mentally ill and this was not that you know this was when was Carl Jung so maybe like the turn of the century around the 1900s this would have been sounds right and yeah that that sounds about right and uh, so this is how heavily ingrained it is even someone who is having (laughs) a supernatural psychopathic uh, you know sort of moment still thinks about these canals and this 15 year old sorry the quote from Carl Jung is she told us of all of the peculiarities of star dwellers and quote she said the whole of Mars is covered with canals. The canals are all flat ditches. The water in them is very, very shallow, and the excavation of the canals caused the Martians no particular trouble, as the soil there is much lighter than on Earth. So it's like weird that this 15-year-old in a psychopathic, psychotic moment is thinking about the construction of these canals yeah. by Martians. I thought that was pretty cool. Well, and the funny thing is, is without context, you could say, oh, well, she was talking about that because she was... Is it a, a male or female fifteen-year-old? It's, it's a girl. Yeah. So she was. T- you could, without context, you could say she's talking about that because she's crazy. She's mentally ill, and she might yeah. have been. But I think the other reason that she's talking about it is at some point she heard or read about um, huh. the, the canal, and that's not you know that wasn't so far fetched in the, at the turn of the century. Well, no, it was probably a legit thing. You know, they were all talking about, and her um, psychosis had just taken that as a seed and rolled with it shall we say you know the funny thing is is we so we recently purchased a photographic lunar atlas that uh was wow uh i think minted in in 1959 and so uh for our listeners check out our instagram page because we'll have some photos uh of that up on there but uh so it's mostly obviously photographs of the moon but there's a little uh, chart in there, a little poster with uh, pictures of the planets. And it's very interesting to see in 1959, we hadn't sent robotic probes to any of the, uh, the planets in our solar system. So the only data we had was what we could see through telescopes. Wow. And Mars is very tricky to see through telescopes because it's, it's constantly changing. Not only does it uh, rotate the way the Earth does, it has almost a 24-hour day. But uh, dust storms and things kind of change. You know what, what you're seeing when you look at it through a telescope. It looks different because if it's covered in a dust storm, uh, it's going to look different than if it's not covered in a dust storm. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the polar ice caps shrink in summer and they grow larger in winter. So the planet is dynamic and changing. And at the same time, you're looking at it from tens of millions, if not you know more than a hundred million miles away. 
and you know to say nothing of what's going on in the earth's atmosphere if there's mm. humidity or moisture or anything, anything. Dust, whatever yeah so it's very difficult to make out surface features and that was the deal with Percival Lowell is doing his level best to to see what was going on and then on top of that to be an astronomer you had to have some skills as an artist to sketch what you saw and put it down there. Yeah. But uh, anyway, the, the Lunar Photographic Atlas I bring up because there's this little chart with the planets and you can see an artist's rendering of Mars and it still has these little straight lines that look like they were like the canals. In 1959, they were like, all right, well, this is what this is what past astronomers said they saw, so we're incorporating this into the artwork. Yeah, well, some of the sketches are incredible. They're so good. And I'm like, if I was looking through a telescope, I would mine would just be like a circle with some little stick men on or something you know it would some of the sketches are so so ridiculously good and you know you see images of mars not necessarily these incredible hd things that we have now but uh, some of the telescope ones or amateur photographers with good cameras it looks like it has canals on it it really does in all fairness well we noticed yeah. that even looking at this lunar atlas is that if you well for the moon at least if you look there are there are definitely these weird striations or, or crack mm-hmm. looking things things that look like there doesn't seem to be any justification for why they're there but they're there yeah definitely and w- what makes me wonder too is i really do think like i said before that that sort of mistake was the major reason why we have this martian fascination with mars more than we do with other planets i really do think that is the biggest part but i wonder before that occurred how much people were sort of thinking about the ideas of i guess life on other planets or something like that people were looking people knew that other planets were sort of existed i wonder what they were thinking what even the moon was there people on the moon did they think were they con did they have the concept of aliens then well we we knew that uh ancient astronomers came up with the word mar maria for uh seas which is the latin i believe it's a latin word for seas because mm-hmm. if you look at the moon with the naked eye the dark patches on the moon you know, could conceivably, you know, you might say, oh, maybe those are bodies of water if you can't make out any kind of definition. So we know that that people were thinking about it to some extent. uh, But I I think that H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds sort of coincided with these, this talk of canals on Mars. Mm. And so there's an argument to be made that uh, perhaps H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds might not have come about had it not been for all this of this, you know, this fascination with Mars that took place around the turn of the last century. But I think H.G. Wells' yeah. War of the Worlds is very much uh, the first time that uh, that a science fiction novel kind of came into the mainstream uh, and, and said, you know, there could be life on other planets. But um, Giordano Bruno speculated about it as well and said, oh, maybe there are people like us on other planets. People hundreds of years ago were thinking about it, but I think it was more relegated to science and academia for the for the most mm-hmm. part rather than something that was a mainstream conversation people were having at a pub yeah well because they're not really looking at mars you know what i mean like you know even on nights that you can pretty much see it as a naked eye it kind of just looks like a star anyway yeah um but i don't know i think i, I guess i guess the other thing that adds to it is not only the canal thing but is also the fact that it is it is quite earth-like you know it's um you know you talk about venus which is the next one that we can see it's just a hot gaseous mess that would just completely dissolve and disintegrate as soon as we got there mars at least seems like it has sort of mountains it has you know we talk about the ice caps it has a lot of similarities to what we could say earth would have it's probably the Um, most earth-like planet 
Definitely, definitely, I would say it would be. Um, so that that also gives us an extra layer of relationship to it. And I, I personally believe that uh, there's we're probably going to find bacteria on Mars. I, I think if I had to hedge my bets mm. either direction, I would say that we would find bacteria on Mars somewhere. And um, maybe, may, maybe not bacteria now, but at least uh, in its history, as we've seen sort of renderings of it, Mars was very Earth-like once upon a time, well, there's more that, than likely. That, uh, we talk about this in our podcast. They found a meteorite in Antarctica that it, in all likelihood was from the planet Mars, and there are these little structures inside of it, which, you know, ultimately it's kind of inconclusive, but there are a lot of uh, scientists who believe that there's fossilized uh, microbacteria inside yeah. uh, the, this this meteorite. So we, we might have yeah. already found uh, evidence of that. Or, you know, the theory of what is it? it's uh, pan- panspermia, I think, mm-hmm. right? right? Life on Earth came from life on Mars. I mean, that doesn't answer the question of where does life come from in general, but that's it's an interesting point that we might all be Martians. It is fascinating. And, uh, yeah, I would, I would say whether we find bacteria on Mars or not, you know, fossilized or living and existing today, I just think it would be more striking and more controversial and more astounding if we didn't find life on Mars. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, depending on the day, I have moments where I'm like, yeah, of course there's life out there. Of course, like it would be ridiculous not to. And then I have days where I'm like, "Mm, well, you know, I think about the, a few of the crazy statistical sort of anomalies that occurred on Earth, well, at least what we think occurred on Earth to, begin life and one of those things was the um binding of archaea and um hmm. the eukaryotes is it, is it? No, I, so this is this is solely your realm so yeah <laughs> archaea and what i think it was eukaryotes i'm probably someone's probably gonna yell at me for saying the wrong one but it's basically two different types of kingdoms coming together and that was the trigger to start complex sort of multicellular life before that it hadn't occurred and then as soon as that happened it was so ridiculously rapid um so so that you know the fact the fact that we have mitochondria in our bodies is a relic from that as well the fact Mm. that we literally have something that isn't a part of us has its own dna that we are working with and and not a lot of people realize that that you know we we are made of something else we are a team you have different types of dna in your body which is a crazy crazy thing and i'm like how often does that happen because that could have been almost like the archaea adam and eve sort of moment that could have been almost put down to one or you know a small number of moments and i'm thinking even if you have perfect conditions on mars perfect conditions on another planet we talk about how crazily large the universe is and how many planets would have had similar situations to earth but is that number larger than the statistical chance of all of these things occurring I'm, you know sometimes i'm not so sure you know if again if i had to hedge my bets i would say there's almost definitely life elsewhere um, if I had to put money on it. But then, you know, thinking outside the box and a bit of devil's, devil's advocate, you know, we don't, we just don't know enough to be so sure about it. Our, our main argument about there being life elsewhere is the fact that, of course, there has to be because the universe is so ridiculously big. Well, I, I think um, biologists kind of uh, lean towards the notion that there is life common throughout the universe because what we know about life is if you have liquid water and some of the more basic building blocks uh, that we associate, you know, those conditions. And there was some 
famous experiment that I unfortunately can't remember the name of, but it was an experiment I think that they did in the uh, 1950s where they had, uh, there's this big glass bubble and they're, uh, they're shooting electricity, uh, like electrical current into this gas bubble. And you can sort of see this brown haze that sort of develops where I guess it was, I don't think they, they didn't create abiogenesis. They didn't create hmm. organic life. They did not create organic life from inorganic material, but they created the the basic building blocks mm, mm-hmm. uh, of life. And so it says, you know, if, if conditions are right, and we know that there is water is common throughout the solar system. We know that for sure. And we also know that uh, a lot of these other elements, these basic building blocks, you know, might be common in the universe as well. And liquid water in some cases uh, does exist, uh, like in uh, Jupiter's moon Europa. Hmm. But so this is yeah, that's I think, just our solar system as well. That's you know, there's way more galaxies where it's probably going to exist in huge amounts. Absolutely, and so I think the conventional wisdom is we, life should be common throughout the universe. And this is what I mean when I talk about you know Copernicus uh, kind of overturning everything we thought we knew about astronomy and physics. Scientists need to be ready for that those big paradigm shifting uh, moments. And so my my statement would be if we don't get uh, if we don't detect radio signals from intelligent life in the universe, if we do a thorough survey of Mars and we don't find any evidence of life there in, it, in its present or in its past, if we drill into Europa and drop a little space submarine into Europa's oceans and we don't find life there, we're, I, I think we're going to have to really reevaluate what we think we know about biology because what it means mm-hmm. is that for, for life to develop, uh, it's not just... Uh, amino acids and liquid water and it's not just a basic there's something else going on there Uh, and so that would be that would just be be very strange so we had a brief intermission here that was unexpected but we're going to pop right back in on Chris's point so um, well what I was going to say is in the first episode of our podcast we talk about the prospects for uh, intelligent life uh, in the universe and life in the universe in general and we quote Arthur C. Clarke where he famously said uh, two possibilities exist either we are alone in the universe or we are not but both are equally terrifying yeah I love that saying I really do there's a lot of cool sayings when it comes to life and things because it's such you know I had a podcast with a physicist recently and one thing he said that stuck with me is that we care we care so much about life elsewhere is because we secretly care about us and we want to yeah. see if the you know the evolutionary dice were rolled a different way what could have happened what could we have been are we really that special are we unimportant and things like that and one of the things that you know really bothers me when people talk about evolution back to talking about evolution is even those that you know understand that it's a real thing whatever else a scientific folk they have a completely incorrect sort of idea about how evolution works they have an almost old school idea about how evolution works and they they think that there's some sort of guiding force and that there's a goal of evolution and that we're sort of at the peak of evolution and that's the way it works but the reality of it is it's just a statistical anomaly that has to occur and in in my books if there is a situation in which you can get molecules replicating not even conscious not even animals if you can get molecules that just rep- replicate from that point statistically on a long enough time scale it has to create complex life it must create complex life if something can replicate and uh, better than another thing that is evolution occurring regardless of even if it's an animal well and so this is my 
without having done any research into this, and but it's a, it's an interesting theory that I'm coming up with that really, um, just like cells, we talk about two cells that come together and create, or two uh, single-celled organisms that come together and end up creating multicellular life, right? I think advanced civilizations, after long enough, they create some sort of symbiotic sort of body, and that maybe what we know is like the individual of, of, of humanity or whatnot, turns into a single species mm. of which turns into like it's, it's kind of weird to say it but like god itself like a, a, a singular fundamental understanding right well we we have plenty of evidence of that on earth you know ants individually uh, they don't have, their, their brain power is ridiculously small right. and then you put them together and they do incredibly they can solve problems they can do incredibly complex things. You look at the structures they make. They, you know, people have researched ant sort of nests. Um, they have areas for waste disposal so it doesn't poison the rest of the ants. They have areas for food that are in colder areas to store it better. They have air at sleeping quarters. and things. It's incredible that these things that if one individual ant cannot do, but as a unit, they can all do together. And it's, again, that is a function of evolution as well, that um, statistically, if they happen to do that, it will occur. Which is really the, the, the sales point for taking biology that I don't think enough uh, people <laughs> who, who, who teach biology... Uh, instill in their students is that that that's really what biology is is taking these very simple dumb be it animals or beings and somehow when they work together they're able to do these unheralded things mm. yeah as men like bees again and again humans we we have a social mind and an individual mind right right yeah mm. um so, did you have anything more than just the canals on Mars? Um, I mean, if you have any have any questions about Mars mission plans, I'd be glad to answer them for you. But that's pretty much all of all I had in mind. You know, uh, we're we're trying to get more guests on these uh, after talk programs, but I think what mm -hmm. inevitably is is going to happen is we won't be able to find guests for every single uh, after talk. Of so, uh, th this has been fascinating uh, and. We would love to have you on the program again uh, in, in the future because I think you, would, you will find uh, our future episodes to be just as interesting, hopefully, as you found the Pluto episode. We've got uh, black holes we're going to be tackling uh, in the future as well mm -hmm. as uh, a lot of other interesting subjects. Yeah, definitely. I would love to. Like I said, I'm always keen to uh, get on other people's podcasts. And actually, hopefully uh, soon... I'm about to have a guy on my podcast, one of the first ones I'm going to do by distance. Um, I was meant to have him on last week, but this construction work I've got, which is, is a bit of a pain, so I decided to cancel and rearrange. But uh, uh, his name's Dan Dan Falk. Uh, shout out to Dan Falk. Don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's like a science communicator, basically. He's published a couple of books, but you guys might actually be quite interested in him because he's written a book called The Science of Shakespeare. And hmm. his, his sort of... What he really focuses on is the relationship of history and science. And I think that's something that's super important. I think a lot of scientists tend to stick in their own lane, which I really dislike and disapprove of. And he talks about the fact that Shakespeare and all these other incredible things occurred directly because of the science of the time hmm. and strangely vice versa as well, that the science of the time occurred because of the 
the history and the politics and things that were going on too. Um, so I'm about to have that episode mm. and hopefully I'll get some insights that I can uh, spin through to you. Wonderful. Yeah, we uh, we bill ourselves sometimes as a science and history podcast because when we talk Perfect. about the space race and first missions to the moon and things like that, that's mm-hmm. difficult. You know, you can't separate that uh, completely from world history. No. You know, it's part of world history. Certainly not. So, uh, and and I uh, write ebooks uh, for Amazon Kindle on the side. Cool. So, from a, the cool. standpoint of a writer, uh, both writing for the show and as an ebook writer, uh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. I hope it will be. <laughs> so hopefully, or I don't know how we want to do this, but hopefully we can come on your show and do whatever your format of your show is, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and just have a, a fun discussion. Um, yeah. These days on the Blunt Report. Yeah, give us some time. Um, I'll work out f- fully the uh, how I'm going to record, start to record properly, and then uh, we'll organize something for sure. Wonderful. Well, cool. Okay. I think we'll conclude the program there. Thanks. Thanks okay. for being on. No worries. Thanks for having me.